0: Uh, today, we have a unique opportunity that we are actually bringing you a lecture given by Dr. Jeannie Morazzo at this year's Infectious Disease Society of Oregon Conference. Uh, this is a recorded lecture from Dr. Morazzo. Uh, and so if you do have questions, you can go ahead and post them and we will work to get you responses. Um, but unfortunately, we did not have her here live to respond in person. And a brief introduction about Dr. Morazzo. She is currently the Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Alabama. She uh, completed her residency at Yale New Haven Hospital and did fellowship in infectious disease at the University of Washington, uh, where she practiced for several years. Dr. Morazzo is a leading researcher in HIV and sexually transmitted infections. Two of her lifelong passions are fostering interdisciplinary collaborative research and mentoring young and mid-career faculty. Dr. Morazzo is well-renowned for her clinical expertise, her research collaboration, and her excellent teaching. She is a delight to learn from, and I'm so excited to bring her teaching to our program today. Uh, Please sit back and enjoy.
1: Um, I'm delighted to be here virtually. I'm very sorry not to be there um, physically. I have very fond memories of, of course, um, um, being at this meeting several years ago and being in Portland fairly frequently. But let me start by um, going ahead and telling you a little bit about my talk today. So I am going to do an update on STIs. And I will come back and explain why I have this sequence of images um, on the title talk, sort of to get you going. Um, but before I do that, I am going to go ahead and just talk a little bit about the IDSA and what we have been up to in the last year, just about four slides. Um, and I think most of you are very familiar with the Infectious Disease Society of America. Um, And what you may not know, although this has been published um, in the Society's uh, journal, the CID journal actually, that we have been working on an updated uh, strategic plan that is intended to encompass the pandemic years and hopefully beyond and we really have three big strategic initiatives that I want to, um, to mention. All of those are underlain by our mission statement, our values. Um, which are shown on the left hand side there. Um, The first is to continue to really optimize our guidelines. Um, Everybody knows the IDSI guidelines very well. Um, They have really been a challenge to keep up to date and to keep relevant, although with COVID, I think we've outdone ourselves, Um, but we really wanna continue to make them as relevant and as helpful as possible to the field as we can. The second, is to continue to look at the workforce and for providing infectious disease care not only to ensure that growth development of that workforce is adequate but to continue to try to advocate for better and more appropriate compensation um, and professional fulfillment i think there has been no time like the past year and a half to really get into this as i mentioned and then um, the last the last uh, strategic priority is to continue to lead the field um, in the efforts to measure and drive national progress on antimicrobial resistance, a topic near and dear. I know to Dr. Gilbert's heart, who I again want to really thank for this invitation, um, and hopefully something we can make a real impact on in the next several years. If you have been awake during the pandemic, I hope you're aware of um, IDSA's very robust response to COVID. Just a couple of slides to talk about this. The COVID guidelines have gotten great reach with over 5 million views. And that was actually as of last month, so it's probably even more. Huge media outreach, lots of briefings, lots of interview requests, lots of media articles, as I'm sure you're aware. And then the journals um, have hosted a very large number of COVID uh, publications. In fact, JID is now rife with COVID publications, as you may have seen. And then some very, very healthy strategic partnerships with CDC um, and the COVID Collaborative Ad Council. Lots of fantastic input from uh, people like Preeti Malani, who have done fantastic media work uh, with IDSA in the forefront. And then in policy and advocacy, we've also been very, very busy. So a lot of statements from Dr. Barbara Alexander, who recently stepped down uh, after her year of tenure as the president, very, very busy year for her. Lots of briefings, letters, and meetings with the White House COVID Task Force, We've been meeting with CDC medical leadership around COVID bi-weekly and as needed, and of course with NIH and FDA. And actually for legislation, I think you may have heard that I testified just the week before last to the Senate Commerce Committee about a loan repayment for biopreparedness. Um, individuals, people involved in biopreparedness, not just ID physicians, but nurse practitioners, public health workers, everybody who's really needed to mobilize a team on the ground. So pretty exciting times and pretty busy for um, IDSA. And I think the feeling in IDSA is that this is really a critical time for us to seize the window. And if we can't not only continue to really serve our members' needs, we need to challenge ourselves to get ourselves out there even more to justify and to convince people of our value. We know that we are essential, especially in this pandemic response, but I think um, championing the essential value of ID has never been in some ways easier, but we don't want this moment to be lost. So that's really what we've been up to. You'll be hearing a lot more about these sort of four areas, compensation workforce, guidelines, and antimicrobial resistance. All of these emphasizing that ID is really critical as we move forward um, and get past the pandemic. So let's go back to SDIs, my favorite topic, and I must say I loved being invited to talk about sexually transmitted infections. It's great to not have to talk about COVID for a while, and you're going to hear about COVID the rest of the day, so please indulge me as I try to talk about STIs. And this is a case that we saw very recently, uh, and I want to use it to drive home some key points about what we're seeing with the epidemiology of sexually transmitted infections. So the 56-year-old woman, With HIV, her HIV is actually rarely well controlled. She's suppressed with a CD4 of uh, 716. And the way that she started to experience her illness was about a month ago, she developed a rash over her legs, her palms, and her soles. She had flat, painless genital lesions that she did not really think were anything different. She didn't really think they were warts, but they didn't hurt. They didn't itch, so she kind of left them alone. She did not seek care at that visit, but two weeks later, so now two weeks ago, she went to the emergency department. Of course, the emergency department was uh, shut down during COVID, and her HIV clinic was also closed. They had no inpatient visits. She was really not able to do telemedicine, and that's that's a reality, unfortunately, for many of our patients, particularly in areas of the country where internet access is not particularly robust. So she did not get a complete physical exam, and what she was complaining about at that time was bilateral eye redness and eye pain, a little bit of photosensitivity. She was diagnosed with conjunctivitis at that visit, again, did not take off her mask, um, and did not get a full exam. Of course, the ER was dealing with the Delta surge at this point, so it was not surprising that she was triaged rapidly as, quote-unquote, not acute. Now, two weeks later, so a month after she started, she has a headache with right, red, sorry, right eye pain, redness, photophobia, and blurry vision, and her left eye is becoming involved. She has tinnitus in both ears. So I don't think that this is going to be a surprise to the diagnosticians in the audience. Um, She was seen here by ophthalmology immediately given her eye symptoms and she had anterior uveitis with laboratory uh, testing confirming that she had syphilis, secondary syphilis, um, as well as neuro involvement given her ear otic and ophthalmic involvement. Her RPR was 1 to 64, and that was confirmed. She also had ele- evidence of syphilitic hepatitis with a characteristic relative increase in the ALKFOS over the transaminases, and that's a great clue. Often no hyperbilirubinemia, but when you see isolated ALKFOS in the setting that doesn't look obstructive um, and your transaminases are only slightly elevated, it's a great clue for secondary syphilis. So, She really raises the question of several things. First of all, what do we need to do differently to stem the relentless STI epidemic in the U.S.? And that wave that I showed you in the very first slide was meant to be the tsunami, primarily of syphilis that we're seeing. But as you'll see in a moment, it's really everything that is just going off the charts. And this slide is just to remind you of some of the classic manifestations of secondary syphilis. And I see these missed all the time. Those are condyloma lata on the genitals here. I've seen them as treated as condyloma acuminata or genital warts or just dismissed. This is the classic sort of rash, desquamating rash on the soles, and then evidence of anterior uveitis. And remember, when you have syphilis in the eye or treponema pallidum infection in the eye, it's really a pan- uh, uveitis or panophthalmitis, the way you go blind is to get retinal hemorrhage and subsequent retinal necrosis. So, um, really urgent situation that you need to treat and take very seriously. Unfortunately, in addition to what we're seeing with syphilis epidemiology, it has been made, of course, only worse by the pandemic, right? So, this case is perfect because it illustrates to accessing urgent care during the pandemic. She went to the emergency department. She had limited access to her HIV kit uh, setting for primary care and challenges with telemedicine for people who really don't have privacy or technical capacity to do that. Lack of knowledge right? We see this again a lot. The ER clinicians who no doubt were completely overrun by COVID failed to recognize clinical signs and symptoms concerning for syphilis. And certainly there's no record of sexual history. It's the last thing that was in the chart, of course, at this point. And then barriers to complete physical examination during the pandemic. When your hallways are overrun with patients, when you are all masked, it's very, very difficult. So how are we going to get past this and where are we going? Well, We're not in a great place. These are the data here um, shown up on the upper right part of this slide, telling you that in 2019, which is the year that we have the most recent surveillance data available. Chlamydia was up 19%, gonorrhea was up 56%, syphilis was up 74%, and I'm sorry to say that congenital syphilis was up 279%. Over half of these infections are occurring among young people aged 15 to 24. And so the list on the slide, I'm not going to go through it, but this is what we're going to try to cover in the next uh, 35 minutes or so. So we'll see if we can get through this um, and leave a couple of of, of minutes for questions. So the CDC, as you know, did release new treatment guidelines um, in July, which is very exciting, and they're actually going to release, we hope, new PrEP guidelines very soon. So here's what's going on with syphilis. You may have seen this slide in one of my many talks in the past um, since 2015, but what you're seeing here are cases... Of or the rate per 100,000, so this is an incident surrogate, of primary and secondary syphilis in men. Remember, primary is a chancre, secondary is disseminated disease. We like to show this because it is a marker of relatively recent acquisition, right? Primary syphilis you get in the last three weeks, secondary anytime in the last three months, more or less. So it's a window into what's going on actively with the pandemic, as opposed to latent syphilis. Nobody really knows when you seroconverted, unless you've got serial uh, serology. So you can see there was an explosion of this in men who have sex with men, concurrent with the sexual revolution in the 70s and 80s. And then of course, HIV put an end to that pretty quickly. But we are now approaching a rate of primary secondary syphilis in men who have sex with men that has exceeded what we saw in the 1970s. And if you look at the more recent number of cases by year as shown here, 2015 to 2019, You see that's evident, but it's also evident for men who have sex with women and for women as a whole group which is really very disturbing. In fact, as I mentioned, primary and secondary infection in women has increased remarkably since 2015. And as you see that go up here in this black line down the bottom, you also very sadly see an increase in the cases of congenital syphilis. In fact, in 2019, we had over 1,800 cases of congenital syphilis. And over half of those occurred in cases where women had no prenatal care. The number was even higher in 2020, over 2000. When you look at these cases, um, it's a sort of a very bleak reminder that over half of the children born to these women um, do are born alive without documented signs and symptoms, but a substantial minority, probably about 35%, do have signs and symptoms of congenital syphilis. And then a very small but still devastating minority are still born. Um, and then no doubt the major uh, issue with congenital syphilis, in fact, some people say, may be undetected infant death or miscarriage. So this may be look very small, but the actual background incidents just undetected may actually be a fairly high. So this is not a proud record. And when you see this increase, it really should make you sit up and take notice and ask what the heck is going on here? What was going on with these women? It's an interesting question because I mentioned that um, about half of them shown in pink here had no timely prenatal care and no timely syphilis testing. And those are women who simply did not get to prenatal care for multiple reasons, including substance use disorders, including um, socioeconomic challenges, um, including lack of access to primary health care. But the other large group which agitates me considerably is in purple here no adequate maternal treatment despite receipt of timely syphilis diagnosis now some of this is because women simply were not able to be brought back in for various reasons again probably some of the same reasons that inform this pink group here and then a smattering of people who were identified late or weren't tested for syphilis despite getting prenatal care so a lot of reasons but a lot of work to do to figure this out so that's what's going on with syphilis we don't have a vaccine yet we don't have any other alternative treatment to penicillin ceftriaxin and doxycycline and there's really no change in the treatment guidelines um, to to note to, to make you aware of now It's not as bad as gonorrhea. Why? Well, I think it is as bad as gonorrhea, but the challenge with gonorrhea continues to be the evolution of antimicrobial resistance and the fact that the pharynx remains a major source of infection as a reservoir and is probably an incubator for antimicrobial resistance. Also very hard to eradicate gonorrhea from the oropharynx with everything but ceftriaxone having a very suboptimal um, efficacy um, uh, rate. So here's what happened in 2019. I've already mentioned the increase since 2015. Geographically, we are very rich in gonorrhea here in the southeast. um, And I've already talked about the fact that there's a higher rate in men, highest incidence among young people, and sadly, this is one of the most racially disproportionate um, infectious diseases that you will see. Really, really, gonorrhea and trichomoniasis in particular, really very predominant in uh, people who self-identify as Black, uh, one of the major uh, uh, racial disparities in the STI field. Now, why are we concerned about it? It's not a good infection to have, but one of the really challenging issues, as I mentioned, is its persistent evolution to of, of antimicrobial resistance. And we have sort of held steady and been pretty lucky with ceftriaxone. So let's look over here on the right side. These are um, Isolates from the Gonococcal Isolate Surveillance Project, GISP, which some of you may know, is a study that collects gonorrhea isolates only from men and only from STI clinics at several locations throughout the United States. So it's an oversampling, no doubt, of men. It's only urethral isolates, so it doesn't give us a sense of what might be going on at the pharynx and what might be going on at the rectum. So probably oversamples men who have sex with men, but it probably undersamples the sites that I mentioned, rectal and pharyngeal. So you can see that in 2010 through 2019, um, let's look at men who have sex with men who consistently have had higher rates of antimicrobial resistance, probably because of sexual networks and just Passing those organisms around as a sexually transmitted infection. Um, look at the scale here; it's only one percent. We really have done relatively well looking at elevated MICs to ceftriaxone so greater greater than or equal to 0.125. So nothing to really write home about yet Um, it seems to be stable and it seems to be pretty consistent whether you are a man who has sex with men or with women very very different for azithromycin you may remember in the last treatment guidelines we were routinely treating gonorrhea with azithromycin um, as well as f And take a look at the rates of azithro resistance in urethral isolates in 2019 among MSM. That is almost 9%. And if you look in the pharynx, not in the GISP program, but in other clinic-based projects, you'll see that that's closer to 10, 20%, 15%. So azithromycin really off the map, even when you get into now men who have sex with women only, you're approaching 4%. And that's really too high to make us think seriously um, about that antibiotic. Now, Jeff Klosner and some others have championed um, whether we should continue to regard fluoroquinolones as an option in places that have low rates of fluoroquinolone resistance. Remember, we used to be able to treat gonorrhea with Cipro, Levo, ofloxacin, and then due to increasing resistance about 2015 or so, that was 2008 or so, I think that was taken away from us. Um, There is an interesting assay that you can use and people are very interested in developing this and we'll see how this evolves. Uh, that will test for the single point mutation in the gyrase A gene that predicts Cipro resistance. And so, if you don't have the mutation and you've got gonorrhea, you theoretically could treat with a fluoroquinolone. The challenge is that um, you've got to be able to detect this immediately at the point of care. So, you've got to know somebody has PC, you've got to use the test, and then you've got to get them their Ciprofloxacin. And in this nice study, very small study, they did note that the people who were triaged that way did pretty well it actually did very well so this could represent a way out of this pandemic i'm sorry out of this this particular problem the challenge with this though is that the window for doing something like this is rapidly closing given the evolution of fluoroquinolone resistance so here we are again at just looking now at the patterns of resistance as defined down here. I know there's varying, um, of course, definitions, so you can take a look at those. But here we are, ciprofloxacin looking pretty good in 2000, which is when we were using it, a relentless increase to the point now where in in MSM, at least, which is, I believe, this denominator, the rates of Cipro resistance are about 35 percent. So really not a very viable option, I think, um, unless you really have a very solid algorithm to define who exactly is going to be able to be treated with this drug. Now, Uh, Chlamydia is interesting. This is uh, actually a very important study um, that was published in CID just this year by Julie Dombrowski. And I think this is a practice changing study, and this is reflected in the treatment guidelines. And I should mention the corollary of what I just talked about with gonorrhea is that the guidelines now, of course, only recommend ceftriaxone. So azithromycin is out the door. The other thing I didn't put in a slide, but you should note, is that there's now a higher dose of ceftriaxone as well. For people who are who weigh more than a certain cutoff, which I can't remember at the moment right now, so there's a, a weight-based um, uh, recommendation for ceftriaxone for gonorrhea, recognizing the pharmacology of it. What about rectal chlamydia? I think that we have known for a long time, certainly talking to clinicians in the Northwest when I was practicing there, that azithromycin was not always the most reliable treatment as a single dose for rectal chlamydia, even when it was asymptomatic garden variety, non-lymphogranuloma venerium chlamydia trachomatis. Julie Dombrowski and her colleagues did a very nice multi Center study where they randomized men who have sex with men with rectal chlamydia, not lymphogranuloma venarium, so just garden variety kind um, to either a week of doxycycline or single dose azithromycin, and by all measures, whether you looked at any of the um, uh, populations, the per protocol intent to treat, the doxycycline was much more effective, significantly so, so treatment guidelines now do not recommend a single dose of azithromycin for rectal chlamydia infection. Everybody should get a week of doxycycline, and if you're concerned about lymphogranuloma venerium, which of course causes a more purulent inflammatory proctitis, if you can't test for that, which requires specialized testing, you can call your health department, of course, you should just extend that doxy for three weeks, two, three weeks. So, to 21 days, so um, very, very important. I think change in the treatment guidelines, um, and the, that's listed here. Okay, so be aware. You, you know, you still can think about azithro um, as a. Oh, sorry, this is for this is for everything. Um, Urogenital, rectal, the, the the for all chlamydial infections, doxy for a week is preferred. Um, certainly, for um, for other uh, for treatment of the non-rectal chlamydia, you can think about azithro um, as a single dose. But in general, the doxy is really really preferred. Um, and then the only other thing I'll mention about gonorrhea, which I think is interesting, is ceftriaxone is not always available, particularly during um, supply chain uh, issues and also during COVID. Given um, the fact that we were not able to always inject people, um, the guidelines now do give you some permission for alternative gonorrhea treatment with oral cefixime at double the dose we used to use, so 800 milligrams. Um, And if you haven't excluded chlamydia with a NAT, you should also treat, of course, with doxycycline if you can do that. Um, This is also, of course, what we use for expedited partner therapy. We typically use cefixime plus the azithromycin just so people can get a single dose of therapy if we are trying to treat partners. And if you are allergic to cephalosporins, truly allergic, you can use injection of gentamicin and two dose two grams of azithromycin not a particularly satisfying regimen and unfortunately there are no reliable alternative treatments for pharyngeal gonorrhea so that can prove to be a very big problem um i want to just touch on mycoplasma genitalium um a lot of people have asked about whether we should start testing for this routinely there's now a nucleic acid amplification test People are asking me, should we test for it in PID? Should we test for it routinely in urethritis? Um, my answer, and I would say the most, most of the people who were part of the treatment guidelines, do not recommend looking for this organism as a routine cause of cervicitis, urethritis, endometritis. Um, think of it as something that can cause most of the syndromes that chlamydia trachomatis causes, but I don't think it's quite as common, and I don't think it's quite as effective at causing some of the inflammatory sequelae. Although we don't know, we don't have we don't have good population-based data. But the sense is that there are not enough, there's not enough evidence yet to veer towards diagnostic testing for syndromes, and certainly not enough evidence to support routine screening like we do for chlamydia. The challenge with MGen is that if it's there, it can be really tough to treat. So doxycycline is only 30% effective. And in some locations, baseline rates of azithromycin resistance are very, very high. other problem is if you give people a single dose of azithromycin for example for non-gonococcal urethritis then you are going to induce resistance um, through the macrolide resistance gene very very easily in 10 to 20 percent of cases moxifloxacin is probably the best drug there are cases of emerging resistance but that's really what you're going to want to use if you need to. So what the guidelines recommend is that you start with doxycycline to reduce a bacterial load. And then if that doesn't work, go ahead and treat with moxifloxacin for 400, 400 milligrams twice a day for seven days. Um, You can use azithromycin if you know that your local macrolide resistance rate is low, but most people don't know that. I would say the people who have done this the best are the Australians, um, Swedes, um, but I don't think we really have a good sense of what's going on in the United States. A couple of words about trichomonas. Uh, Trichomoniasis remains a very big problem, particularly for women um, in the southeast. Um, this is a very nice study that was published a couple of years ago by Patty Kissinger. They randomized women to metronidazole twice daily for seven days or single dose. And basically, they saw persistent infection in one in five women with a single dose therapy versus only one in 10 um, with the week-long dose therapy. So just be aware that longer courses of metronidazole in women at least are clearly superior in men we don't know A study probably needs to be done but it's not done yet so the cdc treatment guidelines recommend against single dose treatment and would like you to use week-long metronidazole again they haven't changed the recommendations for men but it's sensible that it would apply to men as well probably the most exciting part of the treatment guidelines i'm surprised this hasn't gotten more press was to remove the injunction that people who take metronidazole cannot drink alcohol. This was a very exciting discussion at the treatment guidelines meeting. Um, And it was really an evidence review to show that there are no, this was kind of an urban myth that was theoretical. And so now people can take their metronidazole and if they want to, they can drink alcohol. So very, uh, very important, um, important uh, change. Big change in PID that I want to point out, Harold Weisenfeld, beautiful study, also just published this year, randomized control trial in 233 women. The question here was, do you need to routinely cover anaerobes with metronidazole for your average outpatient ambulatory PID patient? Um, So Harold and his colleagues randomized people to either metronidazole or placebo. Plus ceftriaxone and doxycycline. So, half the women got metronidazole, half did not. Primary outcome was clinical improvement in three days. But what was really cool is that they actually cultured um, for anaerobes in the endometrium at 30 days. They got an endometrial biopsy. Um, and then, of course, they followed people for fever and cervical motion tenderness. Um, The clinical improvement was about the same, but what was really interesting was when you looked at the recovery of anaerobic bacteria in the endometrium of 30 days, there was a marked reduction in the metronidazole arm, perhaps not too surprising. What was surprising was also a marked reduction in M. genitalium. No one really understands that. M. genitalium is not an anaerobe. Uh, It it, it just doesn't make any sense, but uh, there it is, and we're trying to figure out what's going on there. Could be that there are... Um, commensals that or anaerobes that support the environment for m genitalium i think that's probably what it is but it was kind of a cool unexpected finding and then really importantly women had reduced cervical motion and pelvic tenderness pretty remarkably by about half in the anaerobe treated arm so we now recommend adding metronidazole routinely for the treatment of pid so this is bad. I've given you a lot of bad information. I think the just sort of finishing up in the last um, five minutes, I just want to mention a couple of hopeful things. Um, and the first one is you may have heard about the hope that meningococcal vaccine, second generation meningococcal vaccines, Group B, may actually prevent gonorrhea. Where did this come from? came from a very interesting analysis of data from a mass meningitis B immunization program that was done in New Zealand in the early 2000s. This was an outbreak of Group B Neisseria meningitis. Remember, Group B is not in Menactra, the ACWY strain vaccine. This is a totally separate vaccine. They developed a special vaccine to immunize people because this outbreak was pretty substantial and in typical good Australian fashion, managed to vaccinate over 80% of the population younger than 20 years. And someone had the brilliant idea to go forward and look at subsequent record of gonorrhea and chlamydia acquisition in those 80% of people versus the 20, 19% who were not immunized. And to make a long story short, because Australia has excellent, I'm sorry, New Zealand has excellent you know public health uh, records, Uh, STD care, sexual health care, they were able to show that the young people who got the group B meningococcal vaccine had a third less likelihood of experiencing gonococcal infection that was diagnosed at one of their sexual health clinics, there was no such reduction in chlamydia. So there is a strong theory that this was due to the vaccine. The other reason this is a very good theory is because of the molecular justification for this. So if you look at Neisseria gonorrhea and Neisseria meningitidis, They're genetically very similar. They have pretty much the same, almost identical NHBA and OMV or outer membrane vesicle antigens. Here's Neisseria meningitis um, and here's the homology to Neisseria gonorrhea. So it really, really looks pretty good. Even in the older vaccine, Vaxero is the new GSK vaccine that not only has the outer membrane vesicle, but also have two additional proteins, NM and NG and HBA, which are highly conserved in gonorrhea. So very exciting potential, we think for this vaccine to prevent gonorrhea. And in fact, I'm leading the study right now that is randomizing people to either placebo or Bexero in an effort to prevent future acquisition of gonorrhea. We've enrolled about 300 patients or participants. We're doing this in the US and Thailand. um, And we hope to have results by 2023, a little bit of a challenge with the pandemic, but we're trying to get back on track. And I'm really, really excited about this. People have a lot of questions about PEP or post exposure prophylaxis for STIs and some of you may actually be prescribing it. Where well, this came from the Epergay study which is done in France you may recall this was the study that proved that on-demand PrEP with tenofovir and prasidabine reduced the rate of sexual HIV acquisition in men who have sex with men remarkably. They saw so many STIs, though, in that study, they thought they had to try something... Different. So, what they did was they randomized the same group of men really going forward to on demand post exposure prophylaxis. So, after unprotected anal intercourse, you take a dose of doxycycline, ideally within 24 hours after sex, but up to three days. Single dose, 200 milligrams or no PEP. What do they show? A 70% reduction over eight months in chlamydia, a 70% reduction over eight months in syphilis and no change in gonorrhea, why? Because gonorrhea is not effectively treated with doxycycline. So this was pretty exciting. People were very excited. There really um, seemed to be a lot of interest. It's a pretty safe drug. Um, It looks good and it's like, not like we have a lot of other options right now. People are still concerned about the costs, the side effects also people took a lot of doxy on average they took four doses a week so they were almost on continual doxy essentially so that's another thing to think about and then how is this going to play out in women we know that doxy is not recommended during pregnancy and how is it going to affect antimicrobial resistance and perhaps even the microbiome so where does it leave us Well, I think we still need to do some work, and if you're interested, there are several clinical trials planned or underway, um, and in particular, with eye towards getting data in reproductive aged women. Um, The health departments that I know of who are actually recommending it include Philadelphia, there may be others, but I do know some providers have just sort of thrown up their hands and said, please use this because I can't see you with another STI. I mean, they will see the patient, but it's very, very difficult. So the last thing I will just finish up with is remind everybody that, you know, don't, don't ask, don't tell, don't look, don't find. You've got to do a good sexual history and you've also got to screen people who are sexually active at the relevant exposed sites. And that means the pharynx, the urethra, the cervix and the rectum. Um, if you identify any of the STIs we've been talking about, please remember it's a risk marker for subsequent hiv acquisition especially in men who have sex with men but not just men who have sex with men and really really should strongly consider a conversation about prep with that patient we know prep works beautifully very very safe um, and it would be really really good to do that and in fact what i would like to see and i have championed this a lot and really want to thank hyman scott from ucsf for this nice um, continuum You've seen this. This is where HIV testing defines essentially where you go with HIV care if you're infected or um, prevention if you're not, right? So, but it all starts with HIV testing, and that's really what you got to do. I would really like to see this be more thought of in the context of comprehensive sexual health care and couldn't wouldn't it be fantastic if HIV testing was simply part of a comprehensive sexual health care approach Um, that is the dream and we will keep we will keep um, keep advocating for it so if I could just you know finish up I think that what I would like to see is to people to have access to more accurate diagnostic tests we still don't have great point of care tests we really need it we really have to continue ramping up screening of asymptomatic people, especially people who are at high risk for ST, for HIV, and to talk to them about PrEP. And we need to continue to try to expand our ability to treat partners, which we are sadly still not very good at. I will point out, just so you know, if you're interested in this nerdy stuff, that there is now a national strategic plan for the um, to address the SP um, epidemic and it's a it's a pretty pretty comprehensive plan. Uh, if you um, are interested, it's been endorsed by three federal agencies, which is pretty remarkable that they got Hrsa, CDC, and NIH to sit down at the table. And the goals don't sound like anything particularly innovative, but I think the fact that it's brought this attention to the effort is really important and hopefully we will um, continue to make some gains because we're not in a very good place. Um, I will stop there. I want to thank you again for having me. I also want to acknowledge Ina Park, um, who was very gracious in sharing the template for these um, update slides that the California Prevention Training Center has done and point out her fantastic book, um, Strange Bedfellows, um, which is well worth a read. So I will stop there and probably stop sharing my slides if that's okay.
0: Thank you, Dr. Maraza, for an outstanding presentation and updates. Uh, there are some questions from the remote audience and also some from our live audience. I'll start off with this one. What is the recommended diagnostic test for M genitalium? And who offers testing and what specimen source options? Great.
1: Yeah, great question. So um, most of, or several of the companies, that offer combined chlamydia and gonorrhea nucleic acid amplification testing have a version that has mycoplasma genitalium, or you can order M M genitalium um, NAT on your own. So it's nucleic acid amplification testing. Um, I'm pretty sure that Genprobe, uh, Hologic, um, Roche, all of the companies that I think you would be aware of offer that. So it's not so much a question of can you get it, it's should you use it. And you can use it pretty much on um, urethral specimens, um, cervical specimens. Um, and I believe it is, I believe it is also approved for rectal specimens. I can check on that and put it in the chat, but definitely for the more garden variety specimens for sure.
0: Hi Jeannie, Dave Gilbert here. Thank hey, you Dave. for a fantastic update. Real quick
1: with the surge of syphilis that you so well described, should we be advocating uh, syphilis testing in our gonorrhea and chlamydia patients? I'm envisioning our missing latent syphilis. Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think it's probably a good idea if you can do it. Um, Certainly in our STD clinics, we routinely do that. I think the challenge is, that it entails collection of blood, um, which is never a bad thing because you can do an HIV test if the person is not HIV infected. So I would say it's an excellent idea.
0: Thank you for that. All right, so with that, we are very grateful for that introduction from IDSA and an outstanding talk to start us off. Thank you.